Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. We've had a lot of fun over the last 10 episodes or so. If murder can ever be considered fun, there have been a couple of heavy hitters along the way. But for the most part, we've been enjoying seeing murderers or would-be murderers have their plans blow up in their face, as in episode 24, The Perfect Murder, episode 25, There Was an Old Woman, and episode 27, Help Wanted. We had a mystery writer come down from heaven to try to solve his own murder in episode 26, Who Done It? And even in the episodes in which the murderers succeed, we find them tripped up in unusual and unexpected ways, such as Back for Christmas, episode 23, and The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, our last episode. This episode has none of that lightheartedness, and rightly so, because this is an episode that deals with addiction. Now, there are some lighter episodes that deal with various types of addiction. There's Fran Holland's gambling addiction in On the Nose, episode 20 of season 3. Though, to be fair, gambling addictions are also treated seriously, such as in Crack of Doom, episode 9 of season 2. Here, though, we're dealing with alcoholism. And while there have been actors who have used a drunken persona for laughs, such as Foster Brooks and Dean Martin, alcoholism is not a laughing matter, even back here in 1956. For that matter, it's a pretty serious subject back in 1945, when Ray Milland plays alcoholic Don Burnham in Billy Wilder's Academy Award-winning film, The Lost Weekend. Pete's sake, what are you doing? Come on and give me a drink. Right with you, Mr. Bynum. Just fixing myself some lunch. Well, stop it and come on and give me a drink, for heaven's sake. Come on, come on. Okay. Can't you hurry it up a little? Hey, yeah, uh, Mr. Bynum. That young lady stopped in last night looking for you. What young lady? The one with the leopard coat. Yeah? Yeah, she acted like she just happened to drop in. But I know she was making the rounds after you. What did you say to her? You said you haven't been in for two weeks. That's good. I can't let her see me not knowing I'm off like this. Why don't you cut it short? Don't talk like a charge. I can't cut it short. You know, I'm letting Mary go around and get her ride it all the way. Round and round till that blasted music wears itself out and the thing dies down and clunks to a stop. Hey, how about you eating some of this? Take it away. You gotta eat something sometime. Just give me another drink. Mr. Boynum, this is the morning. That's when you need it most in the morning. Haven't you learned that yet? At night, this stuff's a drink. In the morning, it's medicine. Okay, if I eat? A little to one side. Don's a little tight. Most people drink a little. A lot of them get tight once in a while. Sure, the lucky ones who can take it or leave it. But then there are the ones who can't take it and can't leave it either. What I'm trying to say is I'm not a drinker. I'm a drunk. And it stays pretty serious in 1962 when Tony Randall plays alcoholic Hadley Purvis in Hangover, episode 12 of season one of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. So hang on to your seat, because we have a long, grim half hour of television ahead of us that will result in, trust me, one of the best episodes of the series so far. So you would think with such a serious tale that Hitchcock would take it seriously. And he does, but not at first. Here, the camera pans over to find Hitchcock tied to a chair with a gag in his mouth. The words, transmission temporarily interrupted, please stand by, come up on screen. 
he quickly gets loose of the ropes and removes his gag. Oh, oh, good evening. Thank you for waiting. I was uh, tied up in a story conference. The writers seem to have escaped. With the secretary, too. I wonder if they left a story behind. Oh, yes, here it is. It's called Never Again. May I show it to you? That's where the intro ends on my DVD. But Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom have more in their Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. Hitch goes on to say, We have a one-minute commercial next, and that will give me just enough time to hire the actors, assemble the props, and build the sets. So here's Never Again, first broadcast on April 22, 1956, starring Phyllis Thaxter, Louise Albritton, and Warren Stevens. Teleplay by Gwen Bagney, Erwin Gilgood, and Sterling Siliphant based on a story by Adela Rogers St. John's and directed by Robert Stevens. Let's take care of the two artists we have seen before and leave the rest for a little later on. We last saw Warren Stevens way back in episode number two premonition, in which he played John Forsythe's brother, Perry. Here he plays Jeff, and this is his last appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So we say goodbye to one Stevens, but not to the other. Director Robert Stevens will be with us nearly until the very end of the entire series. This is already his 11th episode, after Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, The Older Sister, Shopping for Death, Place of Shadows, The Perfect Murder, and Portrait of Jocelyn. He has 33 more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and five episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next episode is our next episode, The Gentleman from America, episode 31. Now, you'll probably recall that one of Robert Stevens' directing techniques is to put objects large in the foreground. Here he opens with an extreme close-up of our lead, Karen Stewart, played by Phyllis Thaxter. So close, we can see her pores. So close, we only get her eyes, which are closed, and her nose, and just a hint of her lips at the bottom of the screen, which are cracked. There's a sheen of sweat on her face, and she's clearly in distress. We get her thoughts as the camera slowly pulls back, and it's an indication of how close up we were that when we finished pulling back, we still don't see anything more than Karen's head, her left hand, and a pillow demonstrating that she is indeed in bed. No, I don't want to wake up. Please, don't make me wake up. It's the bed. I know it's a bed. My bed. It must be my bed. Why does it move and rock? Oh, I wish it would stop. No, I'm not in bed. I'm on the Staten Island Ferry. Foggy. What is choppy? We're lost. That wonderful lost. Karen, stop being so silly. You're not lost. Not halfway to Staten Island. Halfway anywhere. 
You're all the way hungover. The worst hangover ever. Just how bad this one is. Jeff is so right. I promise Jeff, never again. As long as I live, I'll never so much as look at the labels of the bottle. We're only about a minute and 20 into the episode, and already we've been introduced to the title, Never Again. It's there so it can haunt us all the way through the half hour. Now, anyone who decided to press on and watch all of Lost Weekend will find this opening to be very familiar, because the same thing happens to Don Burnham in that film. Well, not exactly the same thing. But here's Don when he wakes up in a strange bed. And then we'll jump back to what's going on with Karen. Good morning, Mary Sunshine. How's your head? Where am I? What is this place? This? This is Hangover Plaza. What hospital is this? Alcoholic ward. How's your head? It aches. Thought you had a fracture until we looked at the x-rays. Everything in one piece. Just a slight concussion. Why'd they put me in the alcoholic ward? Are you kidding? We had a peek at your blood. Straight Applejack. 96 proof. What day is it? Sunday. Are these yours? You and the colored fellow were being undressed at the same time. They fell out of somebody's pants. They're mine. You a doctor? I'm a nurse. Name of Nolan. They call me Bim. You can call me Bim. What's your name? Burnham. What kind of Burnham? Don Burnham. Where do you live? 209 East... What do you need that for? For the postcard. What postcard? To your folks, so they know where Honey Boy is and can pick him up when he's feeling better. No address. Okay, we'll get it out of the phone book or the directory or your wallet. Look, no postcard, understand? Nobody's gonna pick me up. The management insists. If we let you guys go home alone, a lot of you don't go home. You just hit the nearest bar and bounce right back again. What we call the quick ricochet. Look, I'm as well as you are. I can get out of here right now. Think so? Where are my clothes? Downstairs. How do I get out of this place? Right through there. Well, where do you think you're going? To get my clothes. Got your discharge? My what? Your release. I'm all right. Let me out. Get back there. Keep Go your on. hands off me. Burnham. Come here, Burnham. Is this a jail? Well, this department, sort of a halfway hospital, halfway jail. Listen, Bim, in my clothes is five dollars. That's all for you. If only you won't send that postcard. Nothing doing. Now, at this point in our episode, the camera switches position. It's still a close-up on Karen, but now it's on her right side. She finally opens her eyes. She raises her right hand up to her face and discovers it is bandaged from the tips of her fingers all the way down to her forearm. She turns toward us to look at it. She is still large in the shot, but her bandaged arm is larger. The shot switches back to our straight-ahead view, and then the camera slowly moves in again to that extreme close-up. As Karen reaches for a call button that isn't there and tries to puzzle it all out. How'd I hit my hand? Don't be angry with me again. 
Please don't be angry with me again. She tries to remember how she got there. And once she starts thinking, the camera switches to Karen's point of view as we see a rather plain-looking door. And then her gaze turns to the right, and she sees the metal frame of the foot of her bed, followed by one of the great Robert Stevens' extreme close-ups of this episode, as she remembers something about a cocktail glass. And that glass appears before her, filling the screen, before we get that ripple effect that means that we're going into a flashback. Looking at that same cocktail glass, only now it's much smaller, it's on a tray, and it's being carried by Karen, who is smoking a cigarette, and who looks so much better than she does in the bed, it hardly seems like the same person. She walks past the camera so that we then see her back, but she walks right over to a vanity and we see her in the mirror. She speaks to her friend Margaret, who also steps into the shot initially just in the mirror. So we're through the looking glass now, as things appear normal, but it's only a veneer of normality. Probably think I'm silly, don't you, Margaret? Carrying this glass around. Honey, what you do outside of office hours is your own business. You know, I didn't say anything to you while... Don't pretend you didn't want to. Well, it's all over now. Karen turns so that she once again faces the camera, and she holds the glass out. The shot is such so that we no longer see Margaret, just Karen and her cocktail glass. Yes, I haven't had a drink in four weeks, two days, and six hours. So she's been on the wagon for over a month, just working on her own, her own willpower. It's a pretty Herculean effort, even more so when we slowly start to realize how alcohol is everywhere in her life. The camera moves to show Margaret now, no longer in the mirror. Karen uses the cocktail glass as an ashtray, a symbol that she is done with drinking. But then Margaret says, What are you wearing tonight? Oh, I, I hadn't thought. Yes, Karen is going to a party. And as soon as she says that last line, we get a close-up of the cocktail glass as she stubs her cigarette out in it. Now, this could represent that the cocktail glass has become nothing more than an ashtray to her. On the other hand, it could mean that the stubbing out of the cigarette ends her use of it as an ashtray. Margaret gets up and goes over into Karen's walk-in closet to pick out a dress for her. As Margaret goes in, the camera stays out with Karen, and we get her reaction when Margaret says, Karen! Before that moment, Karen looks wistful. As soon as Margaret says, Karen, she looks stricken. She's been trying to shake this world where she feels ashamed or inferior and has to hide things from people. Now, that feeling is back. We switch to inside the closet where Margaret is holding a soiled and torn dress. Karen rushes in and takes it away from her. I'm sorry. I know you think it's a pity to keep anything so lovely in such a filthy and torn condition. That's the way I want it, Margaret. Just like you see it now. What time are you expecting Jeff? What time is it now? It's almost six. Oh, golly, he'll be here at 6.30. Do you mind, Margaret? I just left. Margaret was played by Joan Banks. She was born in Petersburg, West Virginia. And as a child, she attended a school of Russian ballet. She eventually earned a scholarship to the American Academy of Dramatic Art. And in the 1930s, 
she became a radio voice actress. She met radio actor Frank Lovejoy when they both had roles on the soap opera This Day is Ours. Later, they were both regulars on the radio show Gangbusters. She and Frank Lovejoy married in 1940. Now, Joan had a pretty robust career going in the 1950s, with appearances in I Love Lucy, The Danny Thomas Show, and December Bride. She appeared in 10 episodes of the 1953 series Private Secretary, and eventually five episodes of Perry Mason, in four of which she was the killer. Here she is in The Case of the Negligent Nymph. I'm not going to tell you whether she's the killer in that episode or not. George, we're out of supplies. The cupboard is bare and I'm thirsty. How many times have I told you to keep to your end of the house, Karen? Can't a wife visit her husband? Sally. Get her back to her room. The way her husband mistreats her, it sure seems like she could be the killer. Interesting, though, isn't it, that in that episode she plays an alcoholic named Karen. She also played Zelda Gilroy's mother in one episode of The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. With our friend Dabs Greer from episode 25, There Was an Old Woman, as Mr. Gilroy. What's the best way to get her to do anything? To tell her not to do it. Right, and what's the best way to get her not to do anything? Tell her to do it? Exactly. The surest way to have that three-toed idiot for a son-in-law is to tell her she can't marry him. On the other hand, if you say it's all right, then she'll, she'll decide, decide she doesn't, doesn't want to marry him. Oh, good thinking, Walt. That's what they call me down at the office, good thinking, Walt. <laughs> Let's have a little of this bubbling, huh? Uh, just a minute, good thinking, Walt. What if your plan doesn't work? But according to a headline in the March 19, 1958 edition of the Logansport Press, the role she enjoys most is being Mrs. Lovejoy. In that article, Jean Darcy writes, But despite the deep voice, theatrical background, and a cool, cool look, Joan Banks turns out to be a homemaker at heart who likes to talk about husband, handsome actor Frank Lovejoy, children, Judith 15, and Stephen 12 home, California. Darcy notes that Joan was in New York promoting Frank Lovejoy's TV show, Meet McGraw, and quotes Joan as saying, I was on McGraw a month back and will do another show with Frank soon. It was wonderful working together again. We used to do a great many radio shows together. In fact, we first met on an opus called This Day is Ours, and it certainly was. But sadly, Frank Lovejoy died at the age of 50, in 1962, Joan's television career tapered off during the 1960s, and her last role listed on IMDb was in an episode of Bewitched in 1967. But she continued in radio, and she appeared in 33 episodes of CBS Radio Mystery Theater from 1974 to 1980. She's in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Cream of Digest, episode 24, of season two. And she has one other loose connection to Hitchcock. She appeared in The Vanishing Lady, an episode of the Escape radio program, first airing on February 1st, 1948, in which she plays the role 
later taken on by Pat Hitchcock in Episode 5 of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Into Thin Air. My mother, is she all right? I beg your pardon? My, my mother, Mrs. Winship in 342, is she all right? Uh, what was it must be mistaken. There is no Winship in 342. What? 342 is occupied by Monsieur Auguste Noailles, a permanent guest. But don't you remember me? I'm Cynthia Winship. Two hours ago, you put me into a taxi to go to the doctor's house for some medicine for my mother. I am afraid that Mademoiselle is mistaken. I have never seen her before in my life. Joan Banks died in 1998 at the age of 79. So Jeff is supposed to show up at Karen's apartment at 6.30, but he doesn't. He doesn't show up until 7, and she's left on her couch in her fancy dress, still using that cocktail glass as an ashtray. When Jeff finally does arrive, Karen excitedly answers the door and gives him a big kiss, which he finally backs off from. Hey, what do your neighbors think? They look forward to it as much as I do. Seeing us reminds them there are more important things than getting dinner ready on time. And Karen's seesaw of emotions continues as she goes from being so happy to see Jeff to then noticing him looking at the cocktail glass which in the Robert Stevens style is big in the foreground. And she finds herself having to defend herself again. You're thinking bad thoughts. I wasn't thinking, I was just looking. It's just an ashtray. But then it turns out that Karen does have liquor in her apartment. In fact, she has this nice-looking liquor cabinet with a pitcher with martinis in it and lots of cocktail glasses. And she offers up a drink to Jeff. In fact, it appears, if she's been on the wagon for over four weeks, that this whole setup at this point is for Jeff. He at first begs off the drink. But Karen says... But don't you see it? It's a kind of proof that it won't bother me to see you drink it. So Jeff takes it, but then he announces... Oh, it's nice and dry. And then he proceeds to rub a lime around the rim of the glass, then dropping it into his drink. And then he takes an olive on a toothpick and he eats that. So it seems like he's enjoying his drink just a little too much, as he's barely listening to Karen as she talks about how she'd like to do other things after her 9-to-5 job. It turns out she's a secretary. Because Jeff, who's in advertising, is away so often. Then she really gets to her point. And that point is jealousy. I ought to find something to fill in the gap while you're working away on trips or out holding clients' hands, don't you think? Did you ever know me to hold a client's hand? My name Marlowe's a client. Now, this seems like a good time for Jeff to take Karen's hand and tell her that Renee Marlowe means nothing to him. But instead, he continues to drink a drink in front of an alcoholic who is on the wagon, and he defends Renee Marlowe to a woman who is obviously jealous of her. She's actually very important to the agency. She's the brightest woman in advertising we have around. Besides, she's an old friend. Renee likes you. While he's talking, Karen walks away from him, and the camera follows her. So we see her turned away from us and turned away from Jeff, as he seems oblivious to her feelings. This is a constant throughout the episode. Jeff's incomprehension of Karen's worries and concerns and fears. At this point, she pretty much lays it right out for him. We don't share things anymore. Sure we do, honey. More than ever, actually. Yes, your things. Not mine. What I do isn't very interesting. 
Mr. Clemens complaining about his taxes. You don't find that very interesting, do you? I didn't say that. But you meant it. I didn't even think it. Then why did I? I don't know. The camera has followed Karen as she circled the room. And finally, Jeff enters the frame as well, joining her. And when he does that, she hugs him fiercely. We get a shot of her face and his back as she clenches her hands into fists and taps them against his back. And now Karen really bears her soul. There's something else much worse. I, I don't seem to be anybody. I'm, I'm nothing anymore. You're my girl. Isn't that somebody? Well, that's nice of Jeff to say, but that's the whole problem. The only evidence we have that Jeff cares for Karen is when he tells her that he does. His actions do not confirm that. And we get proof of that right away as he goes post-kiss to his prescription to make her feel better. Oh, we got to get you out more. Mix with people more. Tonight, for instance. Oh, yeah, there's a good idea. Tonight? You have a party? Mm-hmm. More advertising people? Oh, honey, they're the only people I know. So it turns out Karen was not expecting to go to a party. She was getting dressed just to go out with Jeff. And now here's Jeff trying to hustle her along, looking at his watch as if he needs to be at this party right away when he's the guy who showed up a half an hour late. You know how they keep us isolated on oxygen? I don't understand that talk, smart talk. I don't understand it either. What does that mean? Honey, that is not smart talk. That's artificial chit-chat, and it's nothing to be afraid of. Really, Jeff? Really? Yes, really. Okay, I'll get my coat. So at Jeff's behest, Karen descends into the belly of the beast. We get a crossfade from the quiet of the two of them in Karen's apartment to the crowd sound of the party in Renee Marlowe's apartment. Renee, who was played by our third lead, Louise Albritton, greets them at the door. And I'm going to play this whole little sequence before looking back at it. Oh, Edith, I've been looking for you. How are you, Dick? Oh, excuse me, Hello, I'm so glad you both could come. Thank you. A lovely dress, Oh, the extra man. Uh, uh, uh. And his extra lovely girl. Thank you, Renee. <laughs> Thank you for getting Jeff here on time. Oh, I couldn't keep him away. Oh, I hated asking him to another party, but there don't seem to be enough hours in the day. Mm, not even enough minutes. Did you get those proofs? Oh, yes, I did, darling. They're in the study. I won't keep him but a minute. I'll make it a minute and a half. Oh, the place is crawling with characters, darling. But just smile sweetly, and any one of them will tell you what his analyst had for dinner. And don't take sides with anybody about anything. I see you have a mixed crowd here tonight. Yes, ex-husbands and ex-wives. <laughs> the scars may still be fresh, darling, so tread carefully. You won't, will you, darling? You know I won't. No, thank you. You scotch over that's right. You're Martine. Oh, uh, no, I don't drink. Sweetie, don't be disagreeable.
So here's the sequence. Karen and Jeff enter. Renee takes Karen by the arm. A woman runs up and grabs Jeff by the arm and says, The extra man. Uh, uh, uh. And his extra lovely girl. So Renee fends off the woman, defending Karen. But then she takes Jeff into the study. Now Renee calls Jeff darling, but that doesn't mean anything. She also calls Karen darling. She's one of those people that calls everybody darling. But nevertheless, Jeff has now taken Karen to a party filled with people drinking in every corner of the room, and he abandons her. So the first thing that Karen sees is a waiter with a tray with six or seven drinks on it. There is a young woman who is taking one of the drinks. She's with an older man who is taking one of the drinks. But Karen turns that down. No, thank you. She walks through the crowd until accosted by the man with a couple of drinks in his hands. You scotch over. No, thanks. That's right. Your martini. Oh, uh, no, I don't drink. Sweetie, don't be disagreeable. He hands her a drink. So now, in spite of her best efforts, she's walking around with a drink in her hand. She nearly bumps into a man who has been all over the place. We've seen him in several different shots already. And then she comes up to a couple who stand up and smile as if they are ready to greet her. But it turns out they are greeting somebody else. The camera moves in on Karen, and then we get a point of view shot of her looking towards the room where Jeff and Renee just went, just in time to see Renee close the door. Okay, so that's the sequence. But who all is at this party? There is a bartender, a waiter, a maid, and then a whole bunch of guests. As far as I can tell, there is at least 25 extras. A few of them get listed in the closing credits, and IMDb lists a few more. But for the most part, these people remain anonymous. Now, I spent far too much time trying to place names with faces, and I didn't do a very good job, mainly because most of these people seem to have been professional extras with credits playing party guests, club patrons, townspeople, and so on. So here's what I came up with, and who knows, it may even be correct. First of all, IMDb credits Mason Curry as Mr. Sterling, though I don't believe anybody has ever called Mr. Sterling in this episode. Mason Curry is described in IMDb as a Canadian film, television, and stage actor. He appeared in movies such as The Buccaneer, The Apartment, and Valley of the Dolls. He was in 13 episodes of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, playing Deke Tuttle, which is where I actually found an audio clip of him. Good afternoon, Mr. Tuttle. Howdy, Ms. Muir. I wonder if you can help me. Maybe. Depends. But do you have any books about the folklore of the sea? You know, legends and fables, old sailor stories, that sort of thing? Maybe. Depends. Well, all I know is that what I'm looking for has something to do with a ship called the Sea Vulture. Does that help you any? Sea Vulture ain't a ship. It's a bird. Look under birds. Oh, well, in this case, it has to do with a ship. Oh. Well, uh, look under ships. Thank you. <laughs> but on the way, better stop off at birds. Don't hurt to play it safe. That and his role in his other Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance as a desk clerk in The End of Indian Summer episode 22 of season two has led me to believe that Mason Curry is the man that offers Karen a drink. You scotch over. No thanks. That's right, your martini. His last role listed on IMDb is as a doctor's voice in The Exorcist. And Mason Curry died in 1980 at the age of 71. 
IMDb lists Kareen Nordman as tipsy woman, which you would think would mean the woman who grabs Jeff and says, Don't be extra mad. But I actually think, after looking at the party scene in the film The Buccaneer, that she's the woman who takes a drink off the tray, just as Karen proceeds into the party without Jeff. Kareen only has seven credits on IMDb, her last being an episode of the Thin Man TV series in 1958, and she died in 2000 at the age of 78. Don Ames seems to have had a long career of playing, I think, mostly silent parts. He is in episodes of Ellery Queen, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Banachek, and Twilight Zone where he is one of the people in line to get on the flying saucer in the episode To Serve Man. He's in the films Shampoo, Blazing Saddles, Hang Him High, and in his Hitchcock connection as a theater patron in Torn Curtain. But it's looking at his role as a salesman in a Batman episode that leads me to believe that he is the man at the party who is all over the place and whom Karen almost runs into. He is next in The Legacy, episode number 35, this time as a club patron, and he died in 1995 at the age of 74. Kenneth Gibson appears to be the man standing behind Karen after she has her drink foisted on her. Rotten Tomatoes says he began his career with a role in Broad Daylight, 1922, and he appeared in Cecil B. DeMille's Cleopatra in 1934 and Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard in 1950. He is in the Batman episode, The Clock King's Crazy Crimes, the same episode that Don Ames is in, three thriller episodes, and the Twilight Zone episode, The Trouble with Templeton, as a bar patron. And he's in three Alfred Hitchcock films. He's one of the diners at Ernie's in Vertigo. He's an auction guest in North by Northwest, and he's a faculty member in Torn Curtain. Kenneth Gibson died in 1972 at the age of 74. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. I think Herschel Graham is the male half of the couple that appears to be getting up to greet Karen, but is actually greeting someone else. This is his first of four Alfred Hitchcock Presents and two Alfred Hitchcock Hour appearances. His next is our next episode, The Gentleman from America, where he plays a club patron. But he's also in Witness for the Prosecution, Around the World in 80 Days, Written on the Wind, and the Twilight Zone episode, A Stop at Willoughby, where he's one of Mr. Misrule's executives. His two other Hitchcock connections are as a luncheon guest in Foreign Correspondent and as a banquet member in Dial in for Murder, and he died in 1964 at the age of 60. Okay, let's leave the party for a moment and look in on Karen back in her mysterious bed. Jeff, I don't drink because I like it. It's when I'm not with you. And I can't bear it. That's the way it was at the party. You disappeared with Renee. And 20 minutes later, you still hadn't come back. 20 minutes has gone by, and Jeff has left a recovering alcoholic at a party just drenched with alcohol. We get a couple more close-ups of Karen in the bed, and then we get that point-of-view shot again of the metal frame of the foot of her bed, which appears to be our gateway to the past as we flash back again to that endless party. Here's the sequence, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Thank you, Bob. 
And then I said, but, but you're turning my hair charcoal gray. Yeah, you never can tell about the man didn't know anything. Oh, he must be in love. He must have. He wouldn't have known the difference between red or yellow or whatever. So this writer said to me, he said, both networks are fighting for my script. I looked him right in the eye. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Dave. I said, don't kid me. We begin with the man thanking the bartender, whose name it turns out is Bob. Thank you, Bob. And taking two drinks away with him. The camera follows him and finds Karen trapped in a conversation between a woman with great gobs of pearls around her neck and the woman who accosted Jeff as the extra man. Karen looks over at the door. It's still closed. She gets up. A conversation forms nearby of the guy who called the bartender Bob and two other older advertising men. So this writer said to me, he said, both networks are fighting for my script. Karen pokes her head into that conversation for a moment and then finds a quiet place to sit by herself. And then we see close-ups of what she sees. Drinks on a tray being carried by a bartender with hands taking them. A close-up of a woman's mouth as she drinks. Close-up of glasses being filled from a pitcher. More drinks being taken off a tray. That same woman's mouth drinking. There is booze everywhere. And then we get back to Karen, and a hand puts a drink right under her nose. And the owner of that hand says, Have a drink. We have one more possibly identified extra in this scene, and that's Franklin Farnham, who I believe is one of the two men listening to the guy who is saying, So this writer said to me, he said, Both networks are fighting for my script. Franklin Farnham was a pretty accomplished actor. IMDb lists him with 652 credits, and Wikipedia says he appeared in at least 1,100 films. Gary Brumberg, in his IMDb bio, says that Franklin Farnham was on the vaudeville stage at the age of 12, and was featured in a number of theater and musical productions by the time he entered silent films near the age of 40. He appeared to be at his most comfortable in the saddle, his career dominated mostly by westerns. In 1925, he left films, but returned five years later at the advent of sound, only to find himself billed much further down the credits, if at all. He continued on, however, in these obscure roles well into the 1950s. And he appeared in eight Best Picture Academy Award winners, more than anyone else. The Life of Emil Zola, Going My Way, The Lost Weekend, Gentleman's Agreement, All About Eve, The Greatest Show on Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, in the apartment. He was also in nine other Academy Award Best Picture nominees. Stagecoach, Johnny Belinda, A Letter to Three Wives, The Heiress, Sunset Boulevard, A Place in the Sun, The Country Girl, The Ten Commandments, and Witness for the Prosecution. And by the way, his real name was William Smith. This is actually Franklin Farnham's second appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He was previously in Salvage, episode number six, as a party guest. This is now his last appearance, and Franklin Farnham died in 1961 at the age of 83. Let's get back to that hand offering Karen a drink. It belongs to a character who never gets a name, but he is played by Jack Mullaney. Have a drink. Oh, no thanks, I have one. Oh, 
fun. You haven't had a drop of it. They don't evaporate, you're supposed to drink them. Why, it's just a little old single. And warmer than Granny's old hot water bag. Here, you take one of mine. Oh, no, oh. no, really, I... It's double. Oh, no, really, I, I can't. Karen! At that moment, of course, Jeff comes out and spots her with that drink. He comes marching up all self-righteous with Renee right behind him in step. Once again, he has a chance to demonstrate his love for Karen and apologize to her for leaving her for 20 minutes amongst all these drinkers. But instead, this happens. What have you got there? I think they call it a double martini. Well, I thought this was going to be a dry summer. I don't intend to drink it. What do you intend to do with it? Dry clean? Yes. Oh. Oh. Karen throws that drink in Renee's face and then looking very stricken, runs out of the party. So does Jeff run after her and accompany her? Well, yeah and no. He takes a few steps in her direction, and then he stops and turns, and he joins the group of people around Renee. Well, that's certainly a mortifying experience, but that doesn't explain the bandaged hand, something Karen wonders about as we return to her in her bed. There's a nice touch as the camera, close up on Karen, moves over to show a close-up of her bandaged hand, and then it fades out for commercial. When we return from commercial, we fade in where we left off, on her bandaged hand. And then the pan reverses back to her face. We return to our time portal at the foot of the bed and find Karen at home after the party, sitting on her actual bed. Jeff shows up, and he apologizes to her, right? No. She apologizes to him. Jeff, can you ever forgive me? Next time, I'll give you something to be jealous about. And he just might, too. He goes over to that liquor cabinet, pulls out that pitcher, which is now empty. I don't think he's checking to see if she drank. I think he wants a drink of his own, which, once again, is really callous and unfeeling. Karen has already opened up to him more than once, and here she does it again. She can't go any further than this. I get scared. I think I'm losing you when we're alone. When no one else is around, then, then it's all right. But when there are other people... You mean women? Clever women. I can't help it. I don't think anyone likes me. Including me? No. When, when I see you across the room with a girl... When I see you dancing with her... Something inside of me jumps. I think I'll just have to have a drink or I'll do something terrible. That sound at the end is all of her pearls falling to the floor because she has just torn her pearl necklace off of her neck. This gets Jeff's attention. All a man wants is someone who's simple and honest and who loves him. Don't you know that? My golly, if you carry on like this now, how are you going to act when we're married? Married? You never said that to me, ever. You never even asked me. I thought women were supposed to be intuitive. And after what I did to you tonight at the party? I happen to love you. Note that it's all Karen's fault what happened at the party. 
And again, note that the only proof that we have that he loves her is that he says he loves her. Unless you want to say that part of the proof that he loves her is that he agrees to do what Karen now wants to do. I want to go back to the party. What? They won't know what to think, will they? They won't know exactly what to say, will they, Jeff? Well, who cares what they think? Okay, we'll go back and show them. When they get back to the party, Karen initially has cold feet when she sees Renee, who is wearing a different dress now. Because, well, you know. But Jeff stops her, tells her again that he loves her, and then abandons her again as he's called away by one of his advertising buddies. In fact, he leaves her with Renee, who has forgiven her for her martini shower. Renee leads her over to the bar to get a ginger ale. But then Renee is called away by a guest who is leaving, so Karen is once again on her own. Karen never does get that ginger ale. She wanders off onto the balcony, where she once again encounters the character played by Jack Mullaney, who enters the frame, drink first. Oh, hello again. Hello. Where you been? I went out for a while. Me too. <laughs> like a light. <laughs> Let's stop here for a moment and look at Jack Mullaney. He is really the fourth major character here and really deserves to have his name up there with the other three above the title. Here is part of what our friend Gary Brumberg has to say in his IMDb bio. Dark-haired, congenial-looking actor Jack Mullaney was one of those gangly and goofy nice guy types who pervaded innocuous 1950s and 60s film and TV comedy. Born on September 18, 1929 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he usually played the best buddy of the star who seldom got the pretty co-ed. Jack's poor schmucks were the huggable, clean-cut kind that every mother would want as a son. In minor film parts from 1957, he provided amiable comic relief hanging around and about the periphery of silly youth-oriented fluff, including the roles of an Air Force captain in The Absent-Minded Professor, Vincent Price's slow-thinking assistant Igor in Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, and Elvis Presley's klutzy sidekick in Tickle Me, as well as appearing in Elvis's film Spin Out. Now, Jack did have some roles in some respected films, such as Seven Days in May. Hello, Colonel. Hot poop from all around the globe. Hi, Grayson. All properly decoded in 4.0 fashion and respectfully submitted by yours truly, Lieutenant Junior Grade Dorsey Grayson. Uh, give this one a reading. Last call annual Preakness pool. Top secret code, too. $10 already deposited with Murdoch. Give length your pick will win. Deadline 1700 Saturday, post time 1900 Sunday, 18 May. Scott, where'd this come from? Uh, General Scott's aide, you know, Colonel Murdoch. He gave me that message at uh, 0725 this morning. Uh, did you get that name, Colonel? General Scott. Yeah, I'm so disillusioned I could sit down and cry. My hero turns out to be a bookie. But he is mainly known for his television comedies, mainly as one of the scientists in the robot sitcom My Living Doll. Tell me about yourself. Uh, she happens to be Carl Miller's niece, and she's staying here, uh, in town, here. Mm -hmm. Yes, we'll, uh, we'll be working together. Uh, is it something confidential, or shouldn't I ask any questions? Ask any questions you like. My memory bank has been fed over 15 minutes of which I can compute in less than one second. This is a recording. You've got a great sense of humor there, Rhoda. <laughs> I haven't seen you around the lab before today. You must be new here, huh? She's that all right. I was assembled two weeks ago. Assembled? Uh, she means she was gotten for the project two weeks ago. She's, she's from out of town, you see. 
Well, maybe if you're not busy some night, we could go out, you know? What do you do with your evenings? I rest my transistors and associated components. Oh, you just rest your uh, transistors? And huh? my solar batteries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these electronics people, that's good. And as one of the astronauts in the time travel sitcom, It's About Time. Why are we going back? We have nothing to worry about. You and I have a million years of civilization behind us, right? Right. These are primitive cavemen. They lack our scientific knowledge. Right. We're smarter than they are. Right. We can outthink them, outmaneuver them, and razzle-dazzle them, right? Right on all counts. So how come a couple of smart guys like us walk into a trap? Sadly, though, things did not work out well for Jack Mullaney. This is from the website thelifeandtimesofhollywood.com. He played a funny part of an IRS auditor on That Girl, did a bit role in Little Big Man, but that was it for Mullaney. No love American style, no love boat. He didn't fit the 1970s mode, and he had just turned 40. Dwayne Hickman, who co-starred with Jack in Dr. Goldfoot, said he was totally lost. His career stopped. Dwayne said he didn't have a drinking or drug problem. He said he was a total professional at all times. Julie Newmar, who co-starred with him on My Living Doll, liked Jack. She raved about his talent as a comedic actor. He was killed by the Q quotient. The quotient experts felt that his innocent, schmucky, bumbling type of character he perfected was out of place in the Vietnam era. Based on this, CBS released him from his contract. Casting agents, based on his low Q quotient, avoided him like the plague. Mulaney fell off the map. He was despondent, but continued making the rounds for the next 10 years. In 1982, at the age of 52, he had a stroke. He was not married, and his mother and sister lived back in his hometown of Pittsburgh. He was placed in the motion picture home. After a second stroke later that year, he died at the Motion Picture and Television Hospital in Woodland Hills, California. He was all alone at the time. Jack Mullaney appears in four total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Belfry, episode number 33, in which he gets his name above the title. Would you care to join me? Oh. No, of course not. That's a silly question. Of course not what? Of course you wouldn't want to join me. You sound like the party wallflower. Right and wrong. Right, I am. Wrong, a wallflower is a girl. That's a feminine gender. I don't know what the masculine is for wallflower. Do you? <laughs> I know another good word, Antith- antithesis. That means the opposite. And in keeping with the opposite, we go from a camera shot facing them as they look out from the balcony to a camera shot facing them as they turn and look back into the apartment. And then we get their point of view shot as they watch Jeff and Renee and that man who called Jeff away having a conversation. But soon it's just Jeff and Renee sitting together on the couch and Renee has her hand on Jeff's arm. It looks very intimate and it doesn't matter how many times Jeff tells Karen that he loves her, he keeps presenting her with situations like this. Oh, well, that's my sister. She's the antithesis. Antithesis of wallflower, that is. Life for the party. I'm her kid brother. I drink. Well, she hates me for it. Great, so I drink even more. So here we have another person who drinks because they feel inferior. They feel that nobody wants to be with them. It's not surprising that these two come together. Unfortunately, they're going to come together with the common interest in alcohol. Would you like to drink with me? No, thanks. I'm all right. And as Jack continues talking, 
The camera moves in for a close-up of Karen. When Jack says that Jeff is going to marry a girl out of the business... You see that guy she's holding on to? He's crazy about him, flipped. He talks about him all the time. You know why? Because <laughs> he's going to marry some girl not in the business. <laughs> he's madly in love with her. Karen... Karen something or other. Karen smiles, reassured. But when Jack talks about Karen being a drunk and that his sister has designs on Jeff... Hey, but you know, she's a drunk, my sister says. And you know, they never get over it. <laughs> Sis is counting on that, I guess. She's part Indian, collects scalps, mayo. But she never fails. <laughs> Karen breaks down. She reaches over to Jack's glass, once again disembodied from him, just in his hand, takes it and drinks it in one gulp. Now, it does seem a little odd to me that this is what finally breaks Karen. She's been reassured by Jeff that he loves her. Renee's brother has just confirmed that Jeff is planning to marry her. So who cares if Renee thinks she's a drunk? On the other hand, she's been dealing with a lot of anxieties and fears that Jeff is only amplifying by his actions. And then she learns that Renee's pleasant exterior conceals a determination to take Jeff away from her. We've already heard that jealousy makes Karen want to drink. And what could be worse than to have all your fears and jealousies confirmed? Still, it's an extreme reaction as she and Renee's brother get another drink from the bar and then decide to leave the party and go bar hopping. Before we join them, let's take one last sweep through the party guests and see if we missed anyone. And then let's take a look at the patrons at the bar. If we can believe IMDb's designations, they have one more actor listed as a party guest. That is Marion Gray, and she seems to be a professional extra. Her bio is filled with such credits as an audience member in Singing in the Rain, a fashion show guest in Funny Face, and a courtroom spectator in both Witness for the Prosecution and Written on the Wind. She died in 1975 at the age of 90, and this is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, so it's a shame that I can't figure out which one she is. Now, since I recorded that, I've had an email exchange with Patrick Wickstrom, co-author of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, and he's been searching for Marion Gray, not using Singing in the Rain and Funny Face, but using the I Love Lucy episode Bon Voyage, in which Lucy, Ricky, Fred, and Ethel leave on an ocean liner and are surrounded by a bunch of extras. IMDb lists Marion Gray as one of those extras. What's interesting about this is that there seem to be several extras from Never Again who are in Bon Voyage. The woman who I think is Corrine Nordman, the one who takes a drink off the tray, seems to be in Bon Voyage, as does another woman that you can see wandering around in the party. So at first we thought that one of these two women must actually be Marion Gray. But then Patrick recalled that Marion Gray was about 70 years old at the time of this episode. And so he checked out Bon Voyage once again, and this time I think he found her. Marion Gray is the woman with the great gobs of pearls around her neck. I had said that it was a shame that we weren't able to pinpoint her. But thanks to Patrick's great bit of sleuthing, it looks like we have. But meanwhile, what about those other two extras that appear to be in both Bon Voyage and Never Again? Well, I think that they are. And IMDb just hasn't caught on to that yet. 
So we've pinpointed Marion Gray, but as we enter the bar, IMDb lists three actors as bar patron, and I can't really pinpoint them. This is the first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes for Jack Mulhall. His next is Don't Interrupt, episode two of season four, where he plays a train conductor. I've taken a look at him in there, and I still can't find him in this bar. He was a veteran actor at this point, his career going all the way back to the early days of cinema. He got his first job in an iron foundry, then he worked as a barker in an amusement park. He acted and danced in vaudeville and in early Ziegfeld shows. And then he joined D.W. Griffith at Biograph. His first film appearance, other than as an extra, was in The Fugitive, 1910. He became a star of the silent screen in roles opposite Mary Pickford and Norma Talmadge. And he was making good money, but was financially destroyed by the stock market crash in 1929. His last role was in 1959 in The Atomic Submarine, and after he left acting, he worked for the Screen Actors Guild as a contract negotiator until 1974. Jack Mulhall died in 1979 at the age of 91. Jack Deary is also somewhere in that bar. He was born in Sydney, Australia. He appears in a number of well-known films, All About Eve, All the King's Men, The Big Sleep, Yankee Doodle Dandy, among others. And his Hitchcock connection is that he's one of the jurors in the Paradigm case. He does appear again. He's a club patron in The Equalizer, episode 19 of season three. And Jack Deary died in 1965 at the age of 72. Our third unidentified bar patron is George Washburn. He was a professional stunt and race driver, but he did manage a decent amount of credits at IMDb in shows ranging from The Untouchables to Get Smart to Columbo. His sister is Beverly Washburn, who played Lieutenant Arlene Galway, who dies of the old age disease in the Star Trek episode, The Deadly Years. This is George Washburn's only Alfred Hitchcock presents appearance, and he died in 1991 at the age of 60. Now, IMDb lists Jack Ramstead as bartender, and that's all well and good, but which bartender is he? The one at the party or the one in the bar? I checked out his brief appearance as a police officer in the 1950s series Coronado 9, and I'm pretty sure he's the bartender in the bar. His first credit is as a stand-in in the science fiction theater episode Jupitron. He has roles in Wagon Train, Tales of Wells Fargo, and Laramie. And his last role is as a man in line, along with Don Ames, in the Twilight Zone episode To Serve Man. Jack Ramstead died in 1961 at the age of 45. And this is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Now, presumably, it's only been a few hours since Karen and Renee's brother left the party to go bar hopping. But Karen is a mess. And Karen is also clearly extremely drunk. Jack is picking songs off the jukebox, but Karen drapes all over him. She has taken her pearls off and she drops them into Jack's drink. So wait a minute, didn't she break those pearls? Well, yes, she did. But then she put on yet another pearl necklace before they went back to the party. So neither necklace fares particularly well. She tries to get Jack to dance, but he isn't interested. Come on, let's dance. No, I gotta play a record. So she accosts a guy in the bar trying to get him to dance. Leave me alone. Then she fights with the bartender over the bottle, rests it away, and pours herself a big drink in a huge tumbler. Leave it! You've had enough! Leave it! That's my own 
We get a close-up of her drinking. And then another one of those out-of-frame voices. Karen! This one is clearly Jeff. Karen looks over and sees Jeff entering the bar. She's so drunk that she sees three Jeffs entering the bar, which might have been all well and good. But then she sees three Renees enter the bar. You would think that Jeff would have learned by now. Because if he had come alone, then maybe Karen would have listened to him. But with Renee there, Karen turns and faces the bar again and goes back to her drinking. Jeff tries to stop her and she fends him off. You think I'm a fool? You think I don't know? No, Karen. Poor Jeff. Come on, let's take you He tries to take her in his arms, but she collapses, falls on the floor. She looks down at her right hand we get a close-up of the broken glass and a big gash in her wrist. So now we know how she hurt her hand. Jeff pulls her back up to her feet, but she fights him. She still has that broken glass in her hand. And the camera swings over to our only close-up of Jeff in the entire episode that then blurs back into the present, looking at the wall from Karen's point of view as the camera then swings to the left showing us again that metal frame at the foot of the bed. But this time, the door opens and a nurse comes through. We look over her shoulder as she prepares to give Karen a shot. I want to go home. I I'm all right now. I, I, I must have been pretty bad. Jeff never would have brought me here. Which hospital is this? This isn't exactly a hospital. The nurse is played by Carol Vesey. She was born Maud Carol Eberts. She married the Reverend Henry Purcell Vesey in 1922. Everybody.wiki.com says, Following her husband's death in 1947, she began acting on stage, in films, and on television. She was a character actress and played almost exclusively supporting roles. At the start of her television career, she appeared in 13 episodes of Norby. In the years following, she had roles in several movies, most notably in Anti-Mame and later Baby the Rain Must Fall. However, her appearances on television dwindled, and she appeared in only one or two episodes in any given TV show. And she is also in The Andy Griffith Show, The Girl from Uncle, Cat Baloo, and My Living Doll. And her last credit was as Mrs. Sherman in the Kolchak the Night Stalker episode, Firefall. I'm Mrs. Sherman. I'm Sergeant May. Oh. The time is exactly 15 minutes before 7. I always take Randolph out for his nighty-night stroll from 6.30 to 7. But that sounds like an awfully long time for such a tiny little dog. Is he con... Well, I mean, does he have uh, blockage problems or yes. Kolchak? Oh, but he's much better. Yes. Well, have you tried any mineral oil? That sometimes helps. Oh, now, Kolchak. Try anything without talking it over with the vet. Yes, you're exactly Turner. Right, of course. Turner! A little exercise. What do you get Kolchak out of here? This is her first of two Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearances. Her next is in Fog Closing In, episode two of season two. Carol Vesey died in 1984 at the age of 88. Now, where were we? Oh, that's right. The nurse had just said, this isn't exactly a hospital. And then we have what I think is an unfortunate shot. Karen looks over towards the window, which she apparently hasn't done this entire time. And we get a shot of that window and we see that it has bars on it. This is completely unnecessary because the dialogue is gut-wrenching enough. It's the city jail. Here. You killed a man last night. 
Jeff Simmons. His throat was cut with a brandy glass. Let's take a moment to allow you to get over your chills, and then let's look at our last two leads. Let's start with Louise Albritton. Here is part of the IMDb biography written by Brenda J. Mills. Louise Albritton was the only child of L.L. and Carolyn Greer Albritton and was born on July 3, 1920 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Soon after her birth, the family moved to Wichita Falls, Texas. Louise's mother Caroline died when Louise was a very young child, and her father was left to cope with Louise's determination to become an actress. He sent her to the University of Oklahoma, where she studied journalism, but after two years quit and moved to California, where she joined the Pasadena Playhouse. While apprenticing there, she tried unsuccessfully to get film work, but was told she was too tall. She was 5 feet 7 inches. She remained at the Pasadena Playhouse, where she performed lead roles in several productions, but without film work, she began to think she would moved back to Texas and life on the 100,000-acre ranch with her father. As so often happens, a scout from Columbia Pictures happened to catch her matriculating on stage and offered her a role in an upcoming Fay Ray Paul Kelly film called Not a Ladies' Man, which stunk. Shortly after that film's release, Louise was in another Columbia stinker, Parachute Nurse, 1942. Louise claimed she played the parachute. Soon after, Louise signed a seven-year contract with Universal, a company not well-renowned for promoting their actors. Universal was known, however, for firing actors and their horror pictures. Louise only made 23 films, actually 24, but the last has never been released. During this time, she met a real-life war correspondent through her good friend Carol Landis, Charles Collingwood, who became Louise's husband. Now that 24th film, which apparently was not released, appears to be a film called Felicia, in which she played Felicia. And the IMDb blurb for that says, The wealthy widow of a famed humanitarian blames herself for his accidental death and becomes an alcoholic recluse, which is an interesting counterpoint to her character in this episode. Now in 1947, the Fashion Academy named her one of America's best-dressed women. And a few years before that, she starred in one of the only films that I can track down to get clips, Son of Dracula with Lon Chaney Jr. In it, she plays Catherine Caldwell, a woman who marries Count Alucard, a name that most people don't realize in the film is Dracula backwards, in order to be turned into a vampire and gain eternal life. Now, since I only have one movie for Louise, let's give her three clips. You do not know why you came here tonight. It was because I wished you here. Why? Isn't Count Alucard right? I wish to here to warn you. The angel of death hovers over a great house. I see it in ruins. Weeds, vines growing over it. Bats flying in and out the broken windows. But I want to know of Count Alucard. Is he coming? Do you hear me? Do you hear me, Queen Zimba? Alucard is not his name. You must stop him before it is too late. Stop him before death comes to Dark Oaks. Tell me if he is coming tonight. I see you marrying a corpse, living in a grave. Dr. Brewster, what on earth brings you here this time of night? I hope nothing's happened to Claire. No, 
No, she was worried that something had happened to you. I'm sorry. Count Alucard and I were married tonight. Yes, so the Count told me. It was the way we wanted it. Quiet and alone. That's the way we're going to live, Doctor. You see, I'm engaged in some scientific research. It will take up all of our daylight hours. And we'll have no time for social life. We want you to explain this to Claire. And to Frank. I'm fond of Frank. But of course, he must never come here again. Frank. Frank. when he found her body and she was dead. She was dead, I saw her. You see me now, too. Yes, but... Do you doubt your own eyes? It is you. It is you, Kane. You're alive. But what is it, Kay? You, you seem to be cold like death. You seem to be Kay, but there's a strange difference. It's almost as if I didn't know you. Does that mean you no longer love me? I'll always love you. Enough to spend the rest of your life with me. But... But you're married, Kay. You're married to Alucard. I don't love him, Frank. I never did. But you're married to him. I had to, Frank. It was part of the plan I told you about in the garden. I asked you to have faith in me then. I beg you to have faith in me now. I don't understand. Count Alucard is immortal. Through him, I attained immortality. Through me, you will do the same. And we will spend eternity together. IMDb provides this anecdote. While filming Son of Dracula, she and co-star Robert Page were constantly playing jokes on their castmates. One day, actor Pat Moriarty and Page were filming a scene where they flip open her character's coffin. They were astonished upon opening the lid to find Albritton inside, completely naked. Louise Albritton died in 1979 at the age of 58. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Phyllis Thaxter, according to IMDb, was the daughter of Maine Supreme Court Justice Sidney Thaxter. Her acting talent came from her mother's side, who was a one-time Shakespearean actress. Phyllis made her Broadway debut at the age of 17 in the play What a Life, and her film debut playing Van Johnson's wife in the MGM war film 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Hello, Flyer. Oh, I'm sorry, I I wasn't sleeping, really. I was just dozing and thinking. I'm sorry I didn't get back for dinner. We had a lot of checking to do. You must have thought I was an awful dope this morning. But I didn't get your letter until later, so I didn't know. I know. Sit down. Mm. 
I think it's swell about the baby. No, I knew you would. I wasn't a bit worried. You know, it's going to seem funny. I don't care whether it's a boy or a girl. Not that much. I just want you to be okay. It's pretty serious. <laughs> well, what's so funny? I was just thinking. Here you're getting ready to go off on something really tough, and you're worrying about me. If I were in your spot, I'd be scared to death. But I guess I am anyhow. Purely routine stuff, Liar. The kind of job every girl takes on. Once or twice in her life. Her next film role was something different altogether, playing psychotic, homicidal Joan Eris Ellis in the film Bewitched, written and directed by Arch Obler of Lights Out Radio fame, and not to be confused with the television show of the same name. Here's part of the trailer. It's my belief that once in many, many millions of human births, a body can have two divergent personalities living in the same brain. What strange power caused this beautiful girl to leave the life she loved? and submit to the influence for evil that twisted and turned within her tortured mind? I've waited, oh, I've waited. Oh, they died. Most of her work, though, appears to be more along the lines of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. IMDb says, Phyllis was depended on as a stabilizing factor in melodramas and war pictures, often the dewy-eyed, altruistic wife, girlfriend, or daughter waiting on the home front. She finished out her MGM contract with Act of Violence, 1949, ever faithful to even the bad guy, this time psychotic gangster Robert Ryan. Phyllis moved to Warner Brothers in the 1950s and played more of the same. The ever-patient wife to a slew of top actors, including shady boat skipper John Garfield in The Breaking Point, 1950, and alcoholic Gig Young in Come Fill the Cup, 1951, and law-abiding Gary Cooper in Springfield Rifle, 1952. Unfortunately, shortly after that, while visiting her family in Portland, she contracted a form of polio. And although she recovered quickly, the disease triggered the termination of her contract. After that, film roles were few and far between. But you can find her in the Suspicion episodes Return from Darkness and The Dark Stairway, the Thriller episode Last of the Somervilles, and the Twilight Zone episode Young Man's Fancy. No. No, you can't have him. I won't let you have him. He's mine now. Mine. Yes, he is. Because I'm right for him. I won't try to destroy him like you did. My love will make him strong. Not weak. Not dependent. Yes, it's true. you always known it's true. And you hated me for it. Your hatred isn't strong enough now. Your desire to dominate him isn't strong enough. It's not your little boy anymore. 
leave him be. Here's IMDb again. Married for nearly two decades to James T. Aubrey, who became president of CBS TV before taking over MGM, they had three children, including Skylar, who would become the actress Sky Aubrey. In 1978, Phyllis made one of her last appearances in Richard Donner's Superman, playing Ma Kent. Her daughter Sky was married to Superman executive producer Ilya Salkind, and Phyllis said, I worked harder on that film than anything I'd done. I couldn't be bad. I knew this time would come. We both knew it from the day we found you. I talked to Ben Hubbard yesterday. He said that, that he'd be happy to help out from now on. Where you're headed? North. Remember, son. Always remember. In 1991, she said about 30 seconds over Tokyo, the Lunts had said, don't stay out there in Hollywood. I should have done just that one movie and gone back to Broadway, but I was foolish and stayed. Rex Reed once said of her, she was one of the most beautiful and patrician icons of the golden age of movies, TV, and theater. She is in six total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Her next, along with Carol Vesey, is Fog Closing In, episode two of season two. And she has one other slight connection to Alfred Hitchcock. She's in the Lux Radio Theater, September 21st, 1953, radio version of I Confess, opposite Cary Grant. I had to see you. Ruth, the police have been questioning me. They saw the two of us talking outside of Villette's house. They're trying to find out who you are. I don't care. I've got to tell you, you're being suspected. I know that. The only thing is for me to tell them that you were with me that night. You can't. They want to know why. I'll tell them everything if I have to. You've got to think of yourself. You've got to think of your husband. Think of him before I think of you. I've never been able to do that. You must. It's too late to think of him. I'm not that good. I love you. I've always been in love with you. I know, I know it's wrong, but I can't help it. You want me to lie to you? I don't want you to lie to yourself. Phyllis Thaxter died in 2012 at the age of 92. Erwin Gilgood and Gwen Bagney were husband and wife when they wrote this episode together. Irwin was Gwen's second husband. And you'll note that he's completely forgotten in her obituary from the Los Angeles Times. Gwen Bagney Duboff. Duboff broke into screenwriting in the late 1930s when it was rare to find a woman in the business. Raised in a vaudeville family that traveled throughout the Midwest, she moved to Hollywood in 1937 to become an actress and wound up as a secretary at Paramount Pictures, where she typed scripts for Robert Benchley, Preston Sturgis, 
and other writers. Eventually, she earned assignments to write for serial radio dramas such as Suspense. When live television arrived, she tackled the new medium, writing teleplays for Playhouse 90, Climax, and Four Star Theater. She won the award for Best Teleplay of 1953 from the Writers Guild for The Last Voyage, which she co-wrote with her actor husband, John Bagney. He died in 1954. In 1963, she married screenwriter Paul Duboff. They drew upon memories of their courtship to write a screenplay about a widow and widower whose children hamper their wedding plans. With Six You Get Egg Roll was the last movie to feature Doris Day, whose co-star was Brian Keith. In 1979, they won a Writers Guild Award for Backstairs at the White House, a miniseries based on a book by Lillian Rogers Parks, who was a maid in the White House for 30 years. The Duboffs also wrote the pilot episode of The Mod Squad and wrote and produced Shirley, a 1979 comedy drama that starred Shirley Jones. Paul Duboff died in 1979. After his death, Gwen Duboff continued to work on projects such as the TV movie Eight is Enough Reunion. Now, Erwin Gilgood has a few credits on his own, including I Was a Shoplifter, but for the most part he wrote with Gwen during the time they were married. In fact, all of her credits after Alfred Hitchcock Presents are with Erwin until 1961, when he dies at the age of 42. Gwen lived until 2001, dying at the age of 88. They each have one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's the same episode, Mink, episode number 36. Now, they aren't the only teleplay writers this time around. There's also Sterling Siliphant. So what is that about? Well, Jack Seabrook at barebonesez.blogspot.com explains. The first attempt to adapt Never Again for Alfred Hitchcock Presents was a screenplay by the husband and wife team of Erwin Gilgood and Gwen Bagney. But their efforts were deemed unsatisfactory, and Sterling Siliphant was paid $500 to apply the final polish. Sterling Siliphant was born in Detroit, Michigan, and moved to California when he was about two years old. After World War II, in which he was an Army lieutenant, he got a job with the Walt Disney Studios in the publicity department. In 1955, he heard that Disney was coming up with a new TV series for children. He went to Walt Disney personally with some ideas of what should be featured on the show. Walt liked his ideas and hired him to write and produce a segment of the show, The Mickey Mouse Club, that would showcase different types of careers that children might be interested in when they got older, to be called What I Want to Be. The first entry in the series, Airline Pilot and Airline Hostess, was received well by adults and critics, but unfortunately kids weren't all that thrilled about it. There were to be further entries in the series, but Siliphant and Disney clashed over the lukewarm reception given the first entry, resulting in Disney's firing him and canceling the series altogether. But after that, Sterling went on to write television episodes and to create the television series Route 66 and Naked City. From there, he went on to films, writing the screenplays for Village of the Damned, The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno, Charlie, for which he won a Golden Globe Award, and In the Heat of the Night, for which he won a Golden Globe Award and an Oscar. He was quoted as saying that he thought a number of his Naked City scripts were better written than his In the Heat of the Night script. And he didn't give up on television. He continued to work television off and on. One of his later creations was the series Longstreet, starring James Franciscus as a blind insurance investigator, a series I loved as a kid. He had a son, Lauren, who was shot and killed at the age of 18 in 1969. And in 1988, Sterling moved to Bangkok, Thailand with his wife and converted to Buddhism. 
This is his first of 11 Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. His next is Jonathan, episode 10 of season 2. And Sterling Siliphant died in Thailand in 1996 at the age of 78. Now, the teleplay was based on a short story, as Hitchcock will tell us in his alternate outro, by Adela Rogers St. John's. Here's some facts about her life from a medley of sources, IMDb, Wikipedia, Time.com, and the Women's Film Pioneers Project. Adela Rogers St. John's was born Nora Adela Rogers in 1894, the daughter of legendary criminal defense attorney Earl Rogers, who drank himself to death at an early age. She was raised by her father alone after he divorced her mother, and she once wrote of her mother, My memory has rejected her, eliminated her, cannot apparently bear to remember her. Now, her father was good friends with newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, and he introduced his daughter to Hearst, for whom she started working at the age of 18, first on the San Francisco Examiner and then on the Los Angeles Herald. She became close friends with Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, and her frequent visits to San Simeon, Hearst's California castle, permitted her privileged access to her subjects. And Hearst Media Properties, Cosmopolitan, McClure's, Nash's Magazine, and Photoplay gave her work visibility and wide circulation. And she wrote short stories for Cosmopolitan and the Saturday Evening Post. Writing in a distinctive emotional style, she reported on, among other things, the Jack Dempsey Gene Tunney Long Count fight in 1927 and the trial of Bruno Hauptmann for kidnapping and murdering the Lindbergh baby. At the height of the Depression, Hearst sent her onto the streets of Los Angeles to pose as an unemployed and homeless woman, exposing how badly the city took care of its poor, thus sparking reform at local charities and the creation of an emergency relief fund. In the mid-1930s, she moved to Washington, D.C. to report on national politics for the Washington Herald. Her coverage of the assassination of Senator Huey Long in 1935 the abdication of King Edward VIII in 1936, and the Democratic National Convention of 1940 made her one of the best-known reporters of the day. She was billed as the world's greatest girl reporter, and film critic Pauline Kael later wrote that just as all movies about Lady Flyers were based on Amelia Earhart, movies about girl reporters were also based on the most highly publicized girl reporter, Hearst's Adela Rogers St. John's. She said in her 1969 autobiography, I was supposed to make people weep over their fallen sisters or homeless women or a mother who had killed herself, because she spent her kid's Christmas on a new dress. We dramatized all this in the newspapers as it is now dramatized on the stage and in best-selling novels. Now, Adela was married three times. First, in 1914, to Los Angeles Herald chief copy editor Ivan St. John's. She was once quoted as saying, I think every woman is entitled to a middle husband she can forget. Now, although she left newspaper work in 1948 to write books and to teach journalism at UCLA, she maintained a relationship with William Randolph Hearst until his death in 1951. In fact, it's believed that she requited Hearst's trust with loyalty that most likely involved collecting dirt on Orson Welles in retaliation for making Citizen Kane. In 1970, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in 1976, at the age of 82, she returned to reporting for The Examiner to cover the bank robbery and conspiracy trial of Patty Hearst, William Randolph Hearst's granddaughter. In 1981, she appeared with other early 20th century figures as one of the witnesses in Warren Beatty's film Reds. She doesn't say much in that film, but she does say this. If men really disapproved of war, dear, we'd have stopped wars years ago. 
men like wars, always have. So they all went and got a little uniforms and went to war. And to put that comment in context, you need to know that Adela's oldest son was killed in World War II. In their Unsung Women feature, Time.com writes, Throughout her long life, she struggled with the demon she'd inherited from her father, his alcoholism, which killed him, and which she called the curse of my life. All the way back in the 1920s, she wrote a novel, A Free Soul, about an alcoholic lawyer and his free-thinking daughter, based on her father and herself, that was made into two films, A Silent and then A Talkie, starring Lionel Barrymore and Norma Shearer. So it's hardly surprising that she'd write a story like Never Again. Adela Rogers St. John's died in 1988 at the age of 94. And this story is her only connection to Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So let's look at the story. But first, let's look at Adela's introduction to the story in her collection, Never Again and Other Stories. She writes, There is little to say about this as it happens, by far my best-known short story, and if reprints and calls for copies and comments and use in schools and colleges is any criterion, one of the best known of our time. Time has been when I honestly thought if somebody didn't mention something else beside Never Again, I would burst into tears. When the idea came to me about 5.30 in the morning of the 5th of July, it scared me. It came whole, just like that. So I waited until Bud Kelland, a wise man indeed about fiction, came in for a cup of tea that afternoon and told it to him. I said, is it? Do you think? It sounds... Bud said dryly, no, no, it scared you because it is just one of those inspirations that you are lucky if it happens to you once in a lifetime, that's all. Since Bud is famous for speaking the truth at all times, I went right upstairs and went to work and wrote it in about four hours. At first, Harry Payne Burton, then editor of Cosmopolitan, was scared of it too. But after weeks of delay, he listened to Bert McBride, his chief associate, and a tall young girl who had recently come onto the staff and decided to print it. Her name was Frances Whiting, and she later became editor of Cosmopolitan herself. Now, the story was published in 1934, just after the end of Prohibition, and it takes place during Prohibition. So rather than Karen going with Mickey, as he's called in the story, to parties featuring advertising executives, they go to a private party and a speakeasy. Karen is notoriously jealous in the story. So they go to a party, and this is the first time that Karen sees Renee Marlowe. Renee is not the host. In fact, Karen asks the host who Mickey is talking to. Ah, that's Renee Marlowe, her host said. What a woman. Karen knew who she was. Her pictures were always in the papers. She lived on Park Avenue and gave marvelous parties and had a salon of sorts. There were a lot of men that she knew. They were awfully amused because she was on the wagon. Bert told her that to be really fashionable, she should wait until after repeal to go on the wagon. Randy remarked airily that a famous psychologist said that nobody but a drunkard ever went on the wagon. That made her furious. There was something else that made her furious, and it's the question I asked all the way through the TV episode. Suddenly, she was consumed with rage. If Mickey didn't want her to drink, why did he bring her to a party like this? You couldn't have a good time at a cocktail party if you didn't drink. Nobody could. Nobody did. She felt lower than she'd ever felt in her life. Everybody else seemed to be having a good time. They were laughing and yelling. So they end up going to a speakeasy, even though Mickey tries to nudge her into going home. At the speakeasy, she gets drunk, and she notices there was a girl in a blue hat talking to Mickey over at a side table by the wall. Karen had seen her somewhere before. 
She was looking up at Mickey with shining, moist blue eyes. She was the girl Mickey had been stuck on before he met Karen. It came to her as she sat on the stool eating potato chips. She got down from the stool, and the potato chips spilled. There was a black gap with nothing in it but sound. Mark Condon's voice saying, You're crazy. He never saw the girl before in his life. Her own voice saying an ugly word, a word she had never said before in her life. She never said ugly words. Somebody was screaming at her. Why had they screamed? Closer and closer it crept, trying to break through the blackness, but she could not remember. And the story finishes like this. A woman in a nurse's uniform came into the room, a large woman with gray hair. She stared at Karen with an expressionless face. She said, oh, you're awake. How do you feel? Karen said, I'm all right. Could I have a glass of water and a couple of aspirins, please? The woman said, I guess so. In a hurried voice, Karen said, I want to go home. Has Mr. Howard been here today? I... I'd like to go home right away. Where are my clothes? You can't go home, the woman said quietly. Karen tried to laugh. I'm quite all right now, really. I don't need to stay in a hospital. Really, I don't. The silence thundered. Karen said, I'm very much ashamed. I'll never do that again. I don't know who brought me here, but I don't need to stay any longer. This isn't exactly a hospital, said the woman. Karen's eyes slid around the room. It's a jail, said the woman. They stared at each other. I guess you might as well have it, the woman said flatly. You killed your boyfriend in a speakeasy last night. I just finished reading a story by William Irish called All at Once, No Alice. William Irish is one of Cornell Woolrich's pseudonyms, and Cornell Woolrich's stories were the inspiration for three Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, including The Big Switch, episode 15, as well as Hitchcock's film Rear Window. If you read All at Once, No Alice, and watch episode 5, Into Thin Air, you will find a whole lot of similarities. And if I'd known about that story when I did the podcast for that episode, I'd have mentioned it. But I didn't. So I'm mentioning it now. And speaking of stories, I finished reading the last of the Hitchcock-Henley Telegraph stories last time. But we still have some early movies to get to. And this time we have one that actually still exists. Sort of. It's Three Live Ghosts. Here's the review from the Exhibitor's Herald of January 21st, 1922. Three Live Ghosts, the first Paramount picture made abroad by Georges Fitzmaurice. Georges Fitzmaurice was a French-born director and producer, active from 1914 until his death in 1940. His best-known films were The Son of the Sheik, Raffles, and Matahari. It tells an interesting post-war story in a humorous way. Photography is exceptional. Frederick S. Isham's big Broadway stage success shows improvement as an entertainment feature. The adaptation was made by Ouida Berger in the clever manner in which she has injected new melodrama and motion picture lore for the original dialogue has added much to the picture. The locale of the story is in London in its environs and deals with the return of three missing soldiers who have escaped from a German prison, arriving as stowaways in London on Armistice Night. Of the three returned soldiers, one is an English nobleman, one a Cockney, and the third an American. The English nobleman is suffering from loss of memory as the result of shell shock. The Cockney, who has been listed among the fatalities, must remain dead owing to the fact that his mother had collected his insurance money. And the American decides to remain dead because of trouble with the girl he loves. Hence the three live ghosts. The unusual conditions are prolific of many interesting and humorous entanglements, and none of the possibilities have been overlooked by the director. The nobleman, suffering from shell shock, is given to fits of kleptomania, and during one of these enters a mansion, attires himself in fine raiment and jewelry, and then carries off a baby in a perambulator. 
With this and a lamb he has gathered in while crossing Hyde Park, the nobleman returns to the Whitechapel home of the Cockney, where the three soldiers are stopping. There, more complications ensue, involving the American and the Cockney, and the unscrambling of the entanglements bring about a happy ending for all. The Englishman learns that he has robbed his own home and stolen his own baby. The American and his sweetheart are reconciled, and he is freed of a charge made unjustly against him, and the Cockney and his insurance matters are squared up. The picture is happily cast with Norman Carey, Edmund Golding, and Cyril Chadwick as the returned soldiers. Others in the cast are Anna Q. Nilsson, Claire Greet, Annette Benson, Dorothy Fane, John Milturn, and Wyndham Geis. The Hitchcock Wiki at the.hitchcock.zone slash wiki says, according to contemporary newspaper reports, parts of Three Live Ghosts were filmed in the Limehouse District of London, which is the area Alfred Hitchcock grew up in. There is a remote possibility that Hitchcock himself suggested the filming locations. Now, this film, like the others we discussed, was thought to be lost. But then came an announcement, posted online on September 9, 2015, on the website of the De Montfort University of Leicester. Lost Hitchcock film to be shown publicly for the first time in nearly 100 years. A lost Hitchcock film that has not been shown publicly for nearly 100 years is being screened this week at the British Silent Film Festival. Three Live Ghosts, 1922, was one of the first films that the young Alfred Hitchcock worked on and had been thought lost forever. It has just been discovered in a Russian archive and is being publicly shown thanks to Lorraine Porter of De Montfort University Leicester's renowned cinema and television history research team. Lorraine, who has organized the three-day film festival at Leicester's Phoenix Cinema, said, no one has seen this since 1922, and many Hitchcock scholars thought it was no longer extant. He was credited as a title designer, but it is likely that he would have been involved much more than that. When you read his interviews, he is talking about helping out and advising, and in those days it would have been a much more communal atmosphere on set. What is also interesting is the role that his wife Alma played, because she was an editor and collaborator, yet received little attention. But then, not long after, the British Film Institute posted this. Missing Believed Garbled. Hitchcock's first steps in film. Though no one has seen it for 90 years, it was known that Three Live Ghosts concerns three British POWs who return to London on Armistice Day, only to discover that they are officially dead. But the version shown at Leicester told a very different story. It is, however, hard to say after a single viewing exactly what that story is. Recently retrieved from the Gus Filmofond in Russia, no mean feat in itself, this version had been thoroughly re-edited sometime in the 1920s to reflect the Soviet view of life in capitalist, imperialist Britain. As Charles Barr, introducing the film, said, there is a thesis to be written about this phenomenon, but the immediate effect was by turns bewildering and comic, or just comically bewildering. The question of discerning Hitchcock's hand receded to be replaced by another. Might Esther Shubb or her protege, Sergei Eisenstein, Barr asked, have done this? There were laughs, but Shubb's role as re-editor at Gaskino, the state committee for cinematography, began in 1922, the year Three Live Ghosts was first shown. What remains, the Gasfilmophon version, is only about 45 minutes long, and it is fascinating, both despite and because of the Soviet's efforts. Occasionally in these podcasts, I ask if the episode is more than the twist, and the answer this time is obviously yes. In the twist, we learn that Karen has murdered Jeff, but Karen isn't really the culprit, even though she commits the crime. 
She's more a victim of her insecurity and her jealousy and her addiction than she is any sort of criminal. And she pays severely for those traits. Jeff isn't really the culprit either, even though his self-righteousness, his blindness to Karen's jealousy, even after she comes right out and tells him about it, and his insistence on putting her in the midst of her demons time and again are all a big factor in his death. And the alcohol isn't really the culprit either. It's not the one deciding to splash itself all over the place. And as we saw, the short story takes place during Prohibition. So even the legal banning of it doesn't end its influence. So, no, the real culprit here is 1950s American society and its embrace of alcohol as an emblem of entertainment, exchange, and expressiveness. But it is also an embrace that will not tolerate extremes, have any silent contempt for abstinence and alcoholism. Just in this one episode, we see alcohol used as a means to please others. Oh, it's nice and dry. To impart beneficence. You scotch or bourbon? No, thanks. That's right, your martini. To make an acquaintance. Have a drink. And to exude authority. I looked him right in the eye. <laughs> I said, now, wait a minute, Dave. I said, don't kill me. Yet at the same time, a stigma is thrust upon those who participate not at all. Oh, uh, no, I don't drink. Sweetie, don't be disagreeable. Or too heartily. You've had enough, Previously, I wondered why Karen broke down when she did, after resisting so ably up to that point. The thing is, after suffering the sting of contempt for saying, I don't drink, she is still saddled with the label of being a drunk. And worse, she is given that label by a man who has already admitted to be a drunk himself, forcing a bond between the two of them by their very outsider status. So it's no wonder she tells Jack Mullaney's character, You know, this is going to be the start of a beautiful friendship. So, yes, the use and sharing of alcohol has many uses in this society. Karen begins by using it as an expression of love and finishes by using it as a cudgel, as an expression of her anger and jealousy. She ultimately drinks to punish Jeff, but the punishing gets out of hand and the punishment goes too far. It is no coincidence that the murder weapon here is a brandy glass. I said a little earlier that Hitchcock doesn't take this very serious episode very seriously in his introduction. He does take it seriously in the outro that I have on my DVD. But according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, that is the alternate narrative. The original narrative still doesn't take it very seriously. So I'm going to read the original outro, then we'll go to a break, then I'll finish that outro, and then we'll finish up with Hitch himself in the alternate narrative. I hope that ending wasn't unduly saccharine for your tastes. On these rare occasions, when we become more subliminal or sentimental, please bear with us. After all, we are dealing with a mass audience in a commercial medium. There's that word commercial again. Quite timely, too, considering what follows immediately, after which I'll be back. Now, as I said earlier, I've been exchanging emails recently with Patrick Wickstrom. And Patrick chastised me for something I said about actor Jack Sheff in my podcast for episode 24, The Perfect Murder. Here's what I said. Now, according to IMDb, Jack was in episode 5, Into Thin Air, as a detective. But I can't find him there. I can't find any detective there. So I'm going to assume that this is Jack's first appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And that, it turns out, is incorrect. Patrick let me know that my mistake was in only checking IMDb and not the cast list in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, where I would have learned that Jack is not a detective in Into Thin Air, 
episode 5, but is in fact the hotel porter. As Patrick put it, he is featured both in the beginning, when they check in, and in the middle, when she comes back with the medicine. So I've learned my lesson not to get lazy and only check IMDb. It always pays to check the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, and I'm sorry about that, Patrick. I won't do it again. Patrick also pointed out that this clip that I used from Hitch 20, in referring to John Williams, back in the podcast for episode 26, Who Done It? Williams appeared in 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an acting feat matched only by Hitchcock's own daughter. Does not mean that they have the most appearances. In fact, as Patrick told me, Harry Tyler and Raymond Bailey both have 11 appearances, although Raymond Bailey has 10 appearances in Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one appearance in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Patrick also let me know that the original post-commercial outro for episode 22, Place of Shadows, which was not on the DVD, was used for an episode of the 1980s Alfred Hitchcock Presents show, an episode entitled User Deadly. So here it is from there, and I'll soon get around to revising the podcast for Place of Shadows to put it in there as well. For those of you who failed to grasp the point of that message, it was prepared by my sponsor, who wishes you to buy his product. I don't think that's an unreasonable request to make. Next week, my beloved sponsor and I, and all our actors who are not on the critical list, We'll be back to bring you another story. Until then, good night. Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1, The Lost Weekend, Reds, Superman the Motion Picture, The Twilight Zone, Season 3, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Seven Days in May, Perry Mason Season 1, Volume 1, and Kolchak the Night Stalker are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Lux Radio Theater production of I Confess, the trailer for Bewitched, the It's About Time episode, the Escape radio episode, The Vanishing Lady, and the episode from The Ghost of Mrs. Muir are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 31, The Gentleman from America, starring Biff McGuire. Now here's the conclusion of the original outro, followed by Hitchcock himself. It is becoming painfully obvious to me that my portion of the program must be made far more dignified if I am to keep up the level of restraint and good taste set by my sponsor. I promise to do better next week when I return at this same time. Good night. Ladies and gentlemen, may I just for this once depart from our customary epilogue. Tonight we have brought you a drama based on one of Adela Rogers St. John's most powerful stories with the hope that somewhere, somehow, it will help someone.